Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Amanda Bullock, Director of Public Programs at Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This episode is part of a special three-episode podcast series exclusively for Portland Book Festival 2022. This year, we feature conversations about swimming, cooking, and music. Over half of the world's population doesn't know how to swim, but it wasn't always that way. Swimming has been practiced by humans for thousands of years for fun, health, survival, competition, and community. Swimming has also been used by some cultures to differentiate themselves from others, the swimmers from the non-swimmers. OPB's Paul Marshall talks with Bonnie Soy, author of Why We Swim, and Karen Eva Carr, author of Shifting Currents, A World History of Swimming, about what swimming can teach us about ourselves as individuals and as a culture. Good morning, Karen, and good morning, Bonnie. How are you all? Hi, great. great. How are you? Good, good. I guess I'd like to start here. What's one of your earliest memories of swimming, and what's your relationship with swimming right now? I'll go ahead and toss it to you, Karen. I don't really remember not knowing how to swim, but uh, I remember my mother teaching me to swim when we first got to Ithaca in the late 60s in open water in a creek, and then joining the, the newly constructed swimming pool and how different that was from swimming in the open water. I don't swim now as much as I intend to, <laughs> um, you know, years of being really busy and raising children and stuff. I got used to the kids swimming and now it seems funny to go to the pool without them now that they're grown. Bonnie, I know water was kind of unavoidable in your upbringing. So I'm curious as well where, where it started for you. Yeah. You know, I would say that I'm like Karen in that I don't remember not knowing how to swim. I don't remember that. And I have very um, vivid memories of being in the ocean um, at Jones Beach in New York um, as a kid, just bobbing in the waves. And I think that's, there's a reason that's in the opening of why we swim because it's such a visceral feeling of, you know, every time you go to the beach in the summer, you know, you see people kind of like going up and down, up and down in this sort of shore break. And, you know, when the, when the swell comes, you know, and everyone just sort of goes like, whoa, up and down. And that feeling I think of as the ocean breathing. And I think that that's a memory and a, also a sensory thing that I go back to again and again now in my adult life, for sure. Karen, in your book, Shifting Currents, as a species, we don't know how to swim naturally. And it's something we have to learn. But you looked at early evidence for human swimming and it was all over the place. Can you give us a quick hitting rundown of how early were humans swimming and how universal was it? Well, I think all early humans probably knew how to swim. I mean, like before they left Africa or as Neanderthals spread out over the world, but even before modern humans, I think they were all swimmers. Uh, we come from warm parts of the planet. And I think in those warm parts of the planet, everybody swam. I think the big break comes with the last ice age, which is the, the most recent ice age is the first one where humans had enough control of fire and clothing and stuff that they stuck it out in the north. And I think those people who stuck it out in the north stopped swimming because even in the summer, it didn't really get hot enough for that to be attractive. And 
after the ice age, when they met people who swam again, they were really weirded out by it. And I think that's the distinction that I'm trying to make in the book that between the people who kept swimming and the people who forgot how there's this gap. Bonnie, in the book, you tell the story of an Icelandic fisherman who survived in the cold water for a really long time. What did scientists learn about humans and swimming from studying his biology? Well, this is the story of Goodliger Fridthorsen, of course, the um, Icelandic fisherman who uh, his fishing vessel capsized back in 1984 and he ended up swimming six hours um, in 41 degree water, six kilometers back to shore. And he was the only one who survived. Um, and what they ended up finding out about him was, you know, he was obviously a, a very good swimmer um, to be able to swim that long and that far, um, but that his body composition was really um, unique. And, and the biological quirk was that his fat was two to three times normal human thickness and more dense. And so the critical difference, of course, was that um, it, he was able, that was able to keep his core body temperature stable in this freezing water. And what I love about the story is that it is this um, convergence of our cultural evolution of, of swimming being something that is taught and passed down and, and is an important skill, but also the stories around swimming um, tell us why it's important. And also it's the, it's the, that our bodies, you know, we're not that far removed from the sea. I know that's a romantic notion, but we do all in our bodies hold, um, you know, all these remnants, um, you know, physiologically from our, from our evolutionary past for sure. I'm curious, was he at all reticent to talk about his experience in the water? It's such a very unique experience that he had in this situation. Was he at all reticent to talk yeah, about it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he kind of became, well, in the beginning, you know, he was a young man. I mean, he was in his early 20s and all of his friends died. And he and he wanted, he was very vocal about um, speaking after the accident um, about self-deploying uh, life rafts because the boat they were on, they were about to get these um, self-deploying uh, life rafts installed in the boats and, and they didn't. <laughs> um, I think it was like a month before or something like that. And so they were, when the boat capsized, they were unable to deploy it. And so they were hanging on to the keel, talking to each other and saying, you know, if someone survives to tell the story, tell what happened, they have to do that. And he was the one left over to tell it. And he, he told me, you know, I will never forget him telling me this because, of course, he became super reticent in the years after. Just sort of, he just was wanted to live his life. But I, rem I will never forget that he told me um, that you know I was I was left to tell, and and most of the time no one is right, so no one would have known what happened. But he bore that responsibility to do that, um, and then it became um, a uh, you know a mandatory staple of the Icelandic fishing fleet. I guess it could feel a little bit like survivor's remorse, you know. It Yeah, absolutely. I mean, can mm -hmm. you imagine that? But he's also um what I loved finding out too was that he's a joyous person. He is a beloved person on his island in his small town and they also protected him from, you know, all the prying eyes of the world after in the decades after this accident um and his miraculous survival. And and the reality is like he also knows, you know, he knows that these kinds of heroic survival stories are things that we all want to know. We want to hear these stories. Um, 
you know, we love stories. So that's how we pass the stories on, but also that we want to know what happens, you know, in these moments of like intense life or death situations, what would we do? You know, like we are so not put in those situations very often. I think that's why swimming is one of those activities now that you can feel that line, that permeable membrane between life and death and swimming and drowning and, and you know and, and i think that's and you know being above the water and being below it like it's something that you can move between states and i think that there is that really wonderful allure there uh, one thing that bonnie's making me think about is the difference between that kind of swimming uh, that you talk so much about in your book, Bonnie, about people swimming in the ocean or in a lake mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. where you can really, you know, in these very cold environments where you can really feel that you're doing something adventurous. Mm-hmm. And the difference between that and so many, especially um, kids who grow up in poverty, where mm-hmm. they're swimming in the local municipal pool mm-hmm. and it's everything is about safety and about about mm-hmm. rules and about control. And maybe that's an important dividing line for swimmers, you know, whether you get to have that sort of beach experience or whether you're limited to a, a much more sort of controlled safety experience. Yeah, for sure. And and also, but I also think about, um, and this is like a little bit of a romantic eye to it too, but like if you had a local swimming hole as a kid, you know, like mm-hmm. that you could just walk to. And in the summers that that was something that you learned, you know, once you learn how to swim and be proficient in the water, that that was something that you could all have access to. I mean, I feel like there is an uh, there are stories uh, that feel more equitable to me and ways of accessing the water that feel more equitable to me. But to your point, absolutely. Like, I feel that the culture, especially in in the United States is like, is one that's very litigious <laughs> now. So mm-hmm. all of these places are like roped off, um, cordoned off and siloed away. And whereas in a, in a bygone era that may not have been so completely that way. And, um, and I feel like there's a real loss there. Right. Yeah. I mean, I grew up, um, to tell another story about my childhood swimming, right? I said it was split between first learning to swim in a creek and then mm-hmm. having this swimming pool. Right. But we right, actually exactly. we actually continued to swim in the creek as children, as teenagers. We had a swimming hole within walking distance of our mm-hmm. house, but it was mm-hmm. illegal to swim there, just as you mm-hmm. were saying. Mm-hmm. And so we had this split between the sort of sanctified swimming that we were encouraged to do at the pool, but very rule-bound and safe. And the much more dangerous swimming that we snuck off to without telling our parents (laughs) uh, that was a lot more fun. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, I do think um, there is this uh, and I and I'm glad you mentioned that because I think there is now, again, like at least in the in the states that um, that there is this real cultural divide between pool swimming and open water swimming. And I think in the pandemic, it was blurred a little bit more than it has been for a long time because, a lot, you know, all the pools closed. And mm-hmm. um, so people really had to hunt around in a way um, that they hadn't been forced to do for places that they could swim, right? Because they realized that it was something that they really needed and wanted in their lives. And so I have been really interested in seeing this kind of re- resurgence or, or renewed interest in 
all the open waters near us here in this country because people kind of took to open water. I mean, in the sort of like recent, mm-hmm. I don't know, 50 years or 30 years, that, that that's something that um, has been embraced much more in the popular imagination than than had been here. You know, and so again, like this divide between like, I'm an open water swimmer, I love, you know, the ocean, I love lakes, you know, rivers, creeks, whatever. And I don't like swimming in a pool, or I'm a pool swimmer, I don't like open water, I don't trust myself there, it feels dangerous, it doesn't feel safe to again, like this, this like preoccupation with safety for good reason, but also that I think that the fear kind of encroaches um, and limits, you know, what's possible. I think I would take that back even um, if you look a couple of centuries earlier, you know, mm-hmm. into the, the 1600s and 1700s, right. well, into the early 1800s, that there's a sense where Europeans that are relearning to swim after not mm. knowing how mm-hmm. are drawing a line between wild swimming, open water mm-hmm. swimming, which is for um, indigenous people, for Native mm-hmm. Americans, for Africans, mm-hmm. for you know the in, you know Indonesian swimmers, and um, and their own swimming, which is going to be civilized and controlled mm-hmm. and scientific mm-hmm. and safe, and uh, is going to involve lessons and lifeguards and competition, mm-hmm. and I, I think a lot of that we're still feeling the effects of that distinction, even though a lot of people, a lot of European descended people now do do open water mm-hmm. swimming. Yeah. yeah there's I a was... bifurcation. I love that through line. I love that you traced that back because I mean, and, and I just wanted to say here that I just loved um, reading through all of this, like these beat, like, first of all, the art in your book is so beautiful. I just love being <laughs> able to go through the page through the centuries and see you know, images and hieroglyphics and just um, all of the different ways, different cultures viewed swimming and all kinds of swimming like like you describe and, and how, you know, there's a freedom, but then there's also this uh, like control mechanism, which is so fascinating from a cultural standpoint. I'm curious, Karen, when you set out mm-hmm. to write the book, it was about the history of swimming, but there is also this examination of not just race, but also swimming and power dynamics. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that relationship and what stood out to you when you were uh, doing the book? I guess in a sense, that's kind of where I started. I ran a big history website and every day I would try to write a new article. And one day it was hot and I was like, I'll write an article about the history of swimming. And I went to, you know, read some things about the history of swimming to get, you know, set in my mind what I was going to write in the article. And I realized that Like, I just didn't believe a lot of the stuff I was reading, you know, as a historian who's worked a lot with power dynamics and racial dynamics, I was like, these histories of swimming are just totally ignoring that. That doesn't seem real. That doesn't seem satisfying to me. So I started looking more into it and I found something I thought was really important that Swimming, like, you know, like a lot of other things, like clothing or like horseback riding or like um, what kind of house you live in, is a way of expressing who you are. And that has meant different things to different people in different mm-hmm. centuries, which is why the book is called Shifting Currents, because, you know, for, for many years, 
for most of human history, Africans, generally speaking, were much better swimmers than Europeans. South Chinese people from Hainan and, and Hong Kong and south of the Yangtze River were much better swimmers than North Chinese people. Then, like, there's this kind of shift in the 19th century where white people, European-descended people, decide that they're going to be the good swimmers and Africans are going to be pushed out of the water. And a lot of people don't even realize that there was a time when Africans were better swimmers than Europeans. They think it's just naturally the other way around. But I wanted to show that it changes over time. Bonnie, I thought it was interesting how you said, like, when you check out new places, you like to see where uh, swimming options are available. And in the book, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you profiled the Baghdad Swim Club, which became mm. a kind of a cultural haven and even an equalizer during the war in Iraq. So how mm -hmm. do you think swimming has this ability to bring humans together? I know you guys have touched on it, but in that instance, uh, what stood out to you? Oh, gosh. I mean, that story is just crazy, right? I mean, to think about um, during a time of war, like active shelling, um, you know, in Baghdad, that these people who've come from all over the world to work in the green zone, that they are, you know, swimming in Saddam Hussein's, like, Republican palace pool, right? That, 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 at that time, um, this is uh, 2008 to 2010, I think it is, um, you know, it was when, you know, a lot of people in the Foreign Service, uh, and, and this is the, the story of, of Jay Taylor, who was a, was a Foreign Service worker there and ended up becoming this coach to, like, a sort of motley crew of, like, I think it you know, we called it mini United Nations because it was people from all over the world. I mean, they, they could have been from Lebanon. They could have been from, you know, Texas. They could have been from Mexico. Like, just like all of these people who um, either had low or no swimming ability. And, um, you know, I thought of this actually when I was um, reading your book, Karen, because I was, mm -hmm. you know, this was a preoccupation that I had was like, why don't people learn? You know, as many people who do learn how to swim, why don't mm -hmm. people learn how to swim? And so this was like, I really loved the tracing back in the history of all of these different in these geographic areas, but also societally, you know, I mean, really, like in the modern day, it comes down to money, right? It is a privilege to learn how to swim. So even if you Absolutely. do live near a body of water, um, you may not ever learn how to swim then because you're no one in your family ever was able to get you into a place where you or had the money to pay for lessons or find a, find a place to learn how to swim, whether it's a pool or some, you know, calm body of water. And that to me, like, again, in our, in our modern day, that was something that like was no matter where you were from, that was mainly the reason why, um, you know, many of these people didn't know how to swim. Mm -hmm. And so in this time of war, the fact that there was this community that grew around this pool and then also um, later on when the green zone moved into a different place that that there was a pool that was a, a place of solace a place of community where people of all ranks and jobs and origin stories could come together and be you know with the cap and goggles and there's you know swimsuits like beginning from the same place like blowing bubbles in the water floating in the water helping each other learn how to swim no matter what their background was it was a community building effort in a time of fracture right and so i think that's what's so 
really moving about that story and that it was a way to escape, you know, to be underwater when all of the mortars are falling, you know, and so to speak. And that all of these people like came together. I, I imagine them kind of coming together and then flying apart again to back to wherever it is that they went to after this. Like this was a period of a few years and, but they all had these very vivid memories and these, um, and also stories of learning that the water was a place for them. I think that mm-hmm. was something that to me was the most powerful takeaway from it. Absolutely. I think so too, that, you know, just wonderful that they went home and they were like, you know what, we can be comfortable in the water. We can enjoy being in the water. And when you said that the next guy who was teaching the lessons after Jay went home, Mm -hmm. like totally failed because he didn't make Mm -hmm. it any fun. I was like, Mm -hmm. that is so much, you know, the line that I'm seeing that, you know, some people think of swimming as not fun. And you had the good fortune to be on a swim team that was fun. Mm -hmm. And, and Jay made this swim team in the green zone that was fun. And that, you know, swimming has to be something people enjoy right. and not like some kind of punishment. Mm-hmm. Water is such a place of play. You know, it's so obviously instinctively that. I, yeah. I noted in the book, Bonnie, that you said that even in grief, time could be marked by water. And conversely, mm-hmm. I think water can also work as uh, even a healing agent to process one's grief. And oh, for sure. I, that was a really poignant line. Karen, swimming has these cultural issues that we've talked about, whether class or race. And it seems like there's been difficult creating separation from that. And a lot of this was took place historically. Why hasn't swimming been able to fully separate itself from those issues, if you will? Well, I think swimming remains a terrific way to... You know, I mean, people identified uh, a couple of thousand years ago, 3,000 years ago, that swimming is a great way to distinguish upper class in-group people from from people who aren't in the in-group because it's inherently difficult to learn and uh, impossible to fake. Right? You can't just be like, oh, yeah, sure, I can swim and jump into the pool. And like reading, right, because Plato associates swimming with reading in his, in what was apparently a proverb in ancient Greece that a person who was ignorant, where we would say they can't read or write, he, they would say they can't read or swim. Mm-hmm. And the advantage of both reading and swimming is that you can do them, you know, suppose you washed up on the beach like Odysseus, right, naked, and you have to establish yourself as an upper-class guy. Your ability to swim and to read shows that you're from the upper class, even though you don't have your fancy clothes, you don't have any money. It's, it's something that nobody can take away from you that marks you as upper-class. And I think people are still making use of that. They they still want to feel like, oh, yeah, we have, you know, a lake house. We have a swimming pool. Um, and, you know, you brought home this boyfriend who didn't grow up with that privilege. And we can tell because he can't swim. You know, so people will, are still using it. I was just going to say, yeah. I was just going to have one point, which was, I'm sure there are plenty of people with the lake house or the swimming pool who don't actually use them. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the most common thing that happens to me, right, is people come up and they're like, you wrote a book about swimming. I learned how to swim when I was a kid. 
And I'm like, great. You know, you've proved that you're from a certain social class. Um, how, when was the last time you went swimming? Like, how often do you go swimming? And they're like, oh, well, I'm not a kid anymore. Oh, interesting. I'm curious when you both were coming up, was there an emphasis on understanding certain swim strokes versus others? I noticed in the book um, that there were there's more than just the common associated swim strokes. But I think about um, the classist conversation of like, this is the way to swim. This isn't the way to swim. Mm. So did you notice those things when you all were coming up in the water? I'm actually old enough that I remember when I was learning the crawl stroke that it was still being called the Australian crawl by some mm. of the people who were teaching us as if it was a foreign kind of suspicious thing to do. We learned the crawl first, unlike in Europe where most people learn the breaststroke first. Um, but the crawl was for a long time, the indigenous people's stroke. So the, the stroke mm -hmm. of people who weren't swimming in swimming pools and being scientific and safe where the breaststroke was the European stroke. And even now, most Europeans can only swim the breaststroke. And Americans learn the indigenous cross stroke, but they, even when I was a kid, it was, you know, a little bit kind of racy that you were learning it. <laughs> um, I thought it was hilarious when I learned that Matthew Webb, who was the first person to cross the English Channel swimming, he did it breaststroke. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I yeah. don't know why it just made me laugh because that um, it just was not what I pictured when I thought when I initially would 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 imagine it to be so. And um, historically, that makes sense, um, but it is also certainly not the fastest stroke. <laughs> that you could be doing to cross. Yeah, Byron Byron used the breaststroke almost certainly to cross the Hellespont mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This question is, again, for both of you, and I'm going to start with Bonnie. What would you say to someone who maybe never learned to swim or is scared of swimming themselves? I would say it's not, it's never too late. It really isn't. And I will say that um, one of the most gorgeous things that come out of the pandemic is I've gotten these amazing letters from people who decided that this was the time that they were going to learn how to swim and either to learn how to just be comfortable in the water to be play with their kids, you know, in the pool or the ocean or a lake that they did it, conquered their fears. And I, I just want to point out that like in, especially in adulthood, this is not a small thing. I mean, this is like a lifetime mm -hmm. of fear again like this very existential visceral fear of of the water and um and what i always tell people is like you know find a buddy you know a teacher if you're doing it in a pool same thing if you're doing open water is just someone who knows the land that you know the waterscape you know and 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 you trust and and you are telling them what it is that you want to accomplish with with learning to swim or becoming more comfortable in the water in various conditions and then the other is to go slow i mean you could go five minutes the first day, 10 minutes the second day, 15, you know, and, and little by little, before you know it, you have become that swimmer that you always wanted to be. I mean, I just think that, you know, that door doesn't shut even when you're 80. <laughs> and I, and I see all of those people, my fellow, uh, wonderful swimming community in, in, you know, my community pool every day is just like, I'm so glad that to see all those swimmers who I would see across the range of humanity, you know, every morning. 
you know, it's easy to kind of dismiss people's fears about the water as their personal fears and people trace it to their personal trauma of, um, you know, some terrible swim instructor who yelled at them or forced them to jump in the water or something like that. But that we should remember that these fears are fears that go back to the Bronze Age when those first Ice Age non-swimmers started to think about learning to swim again. And they made up a lot of, you know, very reasonable excuses for why they weren't going to do it. It's dangerous. It's too sexual. You know, you take off your clothes and people see your body. It's not modest. A lot of people worried in the past and still kind of worry about whether it's religiously acceptable to swim. Um, There's That's where this whole fear of people peeing in the water comes from. We can trace that back to the Bronze Age. And people are like, yeah, you should, you know, you shouldn't wash your hands in the water. You shouldn't get in the water. You shouldn't pee in the water. Gods don't like it. And we retain this feeling that it's kind of wrong to go in the water that people inherit from older generations. And then there's just this feeling that swimming is something other people do. It's It marks you as a stranger, not a member of your community, if you grew up in a non-swimming community. So I think it's important to realize that it's not just your personal trauma, but kind of thousands of years of history that are kind of pushing you out of the pool, but that that can also change. The whole populations of people who weren't swimmers have become swimmers. And you can, you can too, but you have to find a way in that accommodates all of those fears. Karen, Bonnie, thank you for joining us. I appreciate this conversation and thank you all for taking the time. Thanks thank so you so much. Again. That was OPB's Paul Marshall with Bonnie Soy and Karen Eva Carr. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This episode was part of a podcast exclusive series for Portland Book Festival 2022. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff, Joti Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.